Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail. A century ago, nearly one million black farmers worked the land across the United States. Today, there are around 45,000 black farmers. Investigations into the U.S. Department of Agriculture found that starting in the 1950s, illegal and discriminatory loan programs resulted in enormous transfers of wealth from black to white farmers and are at the root of this decline. In her new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, Natalie Bazil makes plain the impacts of this decline in black farming over the years and also celebrates African Americans' long agricultural history with an eye on the next generation. We'll talk with Bazil, who also wrote the novel Queen Sugar, about the book, some of the farmers she's met, and the future of black farming. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. My guest today is author Natalie Bazil. You may know her from her critically acclaimed debut novel, Queen Sugar, about a young black woman who struggles to salvage the sugarcane farm she inherited from her father in Louisiana. It was made into a television series by filmmaker Ava DuVernay and is currently in its fifth season on the Oprah Winfrey Network. And now Bazil has a new nonfiction book out yesterday entitled We Are Each Other's Harvest, Celebrating African-American Farmers, Land, and Legacy. She also calls the Bay Area home. Welcome to Forum, Natalie Bazil. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And first, congratulations on the book. It's beautiful to look at. It's beautiful to read. The title itself, which is from a Gwendolyn Brooks poem dedicated to Paul Robeson, um, just really lovely. Thank you. And there's so much I'm excited to talk with you about, um, including news like the money for black farmers in the Biden's American Rescue Plan, the future of black farming. But first, I'd love if you could ground our conversation with some words from your book. Can you read a bit of your foreword for us? Absolutely. Um, this is the, the way the book opens, a foreword that I wrote, kind of setting the stage. Drive east along Interstate 80 from San Francisco toward Sacramento, past vast alfalfa fields, watermelon and rice, and you'll eventually come upon a two-story mural of a solitary figure squinting out across the land. Dressed in a plaid shirt, jeans, and work boots, a tuft of gray hair peeking out beneath a baseball cap, the figure kneels in a patch of sunflowers, with one hand, the figure cradles a husky yellow Labrador. The other hand points out to the horizon. The figure is a farmer. He is a middle-aged man and he's white. The artist who painted the 20 by 20 foot mural titled Stewards of the Soil says that she meant to pay tribute to the farmers in her community. 
I don't fault her for wanting to honor them. Farming is difficult work. And I acknowledge that her mural reflects the picture most people have in mind when they envision the American farmer. And yet, every time I drive past it, I can't help but think it only tells part of the story. Surely, somewhere across the thousands of acres, there must be a handful of black and brown farmers. Who are they? What stories might they tell if given a chance? Hmm. Where did your passion for stories about black farmers and farming come from? You know, I really uh, think that I grew up um, coming from people connected to the land on both sides. Uh, my mother's family hails originally from Georgiana, Alabama. And my great-great-grandfather, Mac Hall, was born in 1845. And after emancipation, he was a farmer. He was a peach farmer and eventually amassed about 640 acres of land. And then on my father's side of the family, um, although I don't know of any farmers, my dad grew up working um, when he was a kid, you know, picking rice and picking cotton and had, even though that was a very um, uncertain and, and not a, a positive experience, he had his own experience of being connected to the land. And later when I had a garden, when we lived in LA, he would come over and walk and, and help me water the garden and he would take off his shoes. And, and so this idea of being connected to the soil and understanding what that meant has always been part of my experience. And then I can remember seeing um, the Pickford versus Glickman and all those farmers mm. converging on Washington. And when I think about it, that is really my earliest memory of seeing these people who were working the land, gathering together to try to advance their rights. And it was just a very, it was such a shocking sight. Um, and so when I think about all of those factors combined, I think I just have grown up kind of breathing in this atmosphere that farming and a connection to the land is something that is vital to my personal experience and then also the larger African-American experience. And you feature a lot of um, really amazing stories that I'll be asking you a bit more in detail uh, about later on in the show. Um, but first, I wanted to bring up that when it comes to black farmers today, you have some pretty startling numbers in the book. You know, there were nearly a million black farmers a century ago. That's according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And now out of the three point million farmers in the U.S. today, only 45,000 are black. And I want to read a quote from a recent Washington Post article that goes into even more detail. Quote, black farmland ownership peaked in 1910 at 16 to 19 million acres, about 14% of total agricultural land, according to the Census of Agriculture. A century later, 90% of that land had been lost. Mm -hmm. White farmers now account for 98% of the acres, according to USDA data. I mean, That's cool. uh, yeah, it's, it's astounding. And, and how did we get here, <laughs> Natalie Bazil? How and why do we have this staggering level of decline and land loss? Right. Well, you know, a lot of it, most of it, sadly, has to do with the discriminatory practices of the USDA. The USDA was founded to educate uh, and assist American farmers. That was its purpose. And yet, because of the way federal funds were handled 
when they trickle down to the local level, especially in all of these rural communities, those local USDA agents in all those small towns across the South and the Midwest, <clears throat> they you essentially used those funds as their private pocketbooks. And they were the people, most of them were white. And they used those funds really as their own. And were kind of kings, you know, kings of the castles in their in these local communities. They were the people who were deciding who would get the funds, whose loan applications would be processed. And so what started to happen was farm, black farmers who had managed to acquire land, when they would go to their local USDA offices to apply for loans, to get their seeds and all of their inputs, their loans were either denied, and there are stories of farmers saying that their applications were actually torn up, or their loans, their applications were delayed. And so what happened over time was these farmers would begin to fall farther and farther behind. Because if you don't get your loan application in, and if you don't get it approved, and you don't get the money in time for the next planting season, that means you're going to fall behind. You won't be able to plant your crop in time, which means that you won't have a viable crop, which means that you don't make the money that you need to make, which means that you can't repay back the loan. And so there were all of these ways that the USDA as a government agency deployed these discriminatory practices that eventually robbed black farmers of their land because once they fell behind in their payments, then the government would go in and actually seize their property. And unfortunately, a lot of those black farmers did not know that they should, for example, put their land in a trust or put it in an LLC because they never got that information. And so they were forced to over collateralize in order to get the loans. They were forced to put up their house, their personal property, their houses, their, you know, their, their cars. And when they would fall behind on the loan, the government would come in and seize everything. And you think about that. If you do that generation after generation after generation, it amounts to tremendous land loss. And I think the most criminal aspect of this is that often in these local communities, the USD agents would, would target these farmers. And then when the farmer went under, then they would give that land to the white farmers in those communities. And the black farmers really had no recourse. They had no way to defend themselves. And so across the, uh, across the country, generation after generation, this is what happens. And it has led to uh, this tremendous, tremendous land loss. The other smaller aspect of this has to do with heirs' property. Yeah, and I was going to ask is, about that, why it's been so hard to keep the title of a land. Exactly. Here. Well, if you think about the fact that, let's say, let's take my grandfather, for example, Mac Hall. He amasses 640 acres of land. But when he passed on, if he did not have um, a will, then that property would go to the descendants and then the next generation, that property would be divided and then divided again. And what happened, especially in the Southeast, 
developers, as that land became more valuable, let's take um, Hilton Head, South Carolina, where a lot of black farmers originally owned that land as a result of General Sherman's Field Order 15, when they were given that land along the, the southeast uh, seacoast, once that land over generations had been distributed among, you know, a dozen cousins, something like that, developers would go in, they would find the one cousin, right, the one descendant who was willing to sell their share of that land. And then they would buy that share, often for pennies on the dollar, and then they would be able to force the sale of that land among the other family members. Hmm. And again, it led to, that's why you have so many golf courses, you know, in Hilton Head and all these places. That land was originally owned by black people, but they, they were forced to sell. So th those are really the two reasons why um, we've lost so much land in our community. And now I see that hedge funds are contributing to some of this as well, because it's, exactly. it's ballooned to kind of taking even bigger swaths. So even buying out the smaller white farms that had, that had taken land from the black farms and it's um, become exactly. a pretty um, even bigger issue in that sense. We're exactly. talking with Natalie Bazil about the decline in black farming and her new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest. Natalie Bazil is also the author of Queen Sugar and we want to hear from you, our listeners. What questions do you have about the state of black farming in the U.S.? Are you a black farmer or was someone in your family history a black farmer? Or maybe you're interested in becoming one. Share your experience with us. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll have more with Natalie Bazil after the break. I'm Ariana Prail, and you're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. We're talking with Natalie Bazil about the decline in black farming and about her new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, documenting different stories of black farmers across the U.S. And before the break, we were talking a lot about all the challenges that black farmers have faced in this country institutionally. Um, and I wanted to talk about the Pigford case as well that you brought up and go into a little bit more detail. Can you talk about what happened specifically with that case? Sure. So um, Timothy Pigford was the name plaintiff in a lawsuit uh, that happened in the early 90s where farmers who had been, in, who had endured this history of discrimination finally gathered together and uh, they had this class, la 
class action lawsuit where they sued the USDA and what the U- and they won and the USDA admitted they acknowledged that they had been deploying all of these discriminatory practices in the wake of that victory some of the plaintiffs in that lawsuit were awarded money but the average award was $50,000 which is a pittance because if you think about the fact that most of those black farmers were hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt by the time that lawsuit finally came to pass $50,000 was no money it would not help them in any way and then a lot of times <laughs> the IRS would come in and tax them on that money if they even got any money at all and so Pickford versus Glickman is this kind of historic lawsuit that people point to as the first um the first time the USDA actually had to acknowledge these discriminatory practices. There was a Pickford 2 that took place during the Obama, uh, during uh, President Obama's administration. But the problem with that lawsuit is that it really it, it its effects were kind of tempered by the fact that by the time that money came through it wasn't enough and also a lot of the farmers had passed on and so although it was this historic moment um it really did not have the effect that people had hoped it would have in saving these black farmers and so a lot of them uh since especially people who were in their you know 50s uh when it happened you know they they've now passed on let's go to caller janet in berkeley janet you're on hi i just have to say i really really love uh your writing and uh, around queen sugar my family's from louisiana and having a genetic tree done we can see that our roots go back to the from to mississippi to louisiana my ancestors so i i love the show um but i also want to say i think it's ridiculous what we hear about how <clears throat> african americans have been taken advantage of land has been stolen uh and all the abuses that have occurred and we keep having this conversation about we don't understand how reparation could work we don't think it it's possible there are so having worked in government at a planning level and an analyst level there are so many concrete ways that the government and private industry can address reparation for generations to come and land is one of an ownership of property is one of the most powerful ways to help correct wrongs that have been done in conjunction with education so i find it really upsetting when i continue to hear and i'm grateful for this new information to continue to hear story after story about how my ancestors suffered through racism in America from government to private industry and we keep saying we don't know how we can correct this there are concrete ways to do it and just as you stated there are ways that, there are these little superficial efforts that don't really impact generations in the future all those farmers whose children lost land in Hilton Highlands. I mean, how do you correct that? You look at ways to create ownership. You look at ways to create opportunity for people to buy land again with special considerations considering what we've been through as a people. So, I just have to say, I really hope that we can move some of the history and the conversations that are concrete and that are proven into how do we move forward? with generations that have been harmed and generations to come so that we can look at what do we what do we do in this country instead of just saying oh 
I don't know how that's possible. It's all possible. Thank you for your comment, Janet. I mean, yeah, she's, I mean, in some of the, the reading I was doing in preparation for today, it was, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars in wealth that has been lost. Um, what do you have to, to say in regards to Janet's comment, Natalie Bazil? I totally agree with her. I, I totally agree with her. Um, you know, and I think what is, what gives me hope, guarded hope, is to look at the details uh, that, that have come out so far from the Emergency Relief for Farmers of Color Act that is sponsored by uh, our new, you know, the new Senator Raphael Warnock and Senator Booker and Ben Lay Lujan and uh, Agriculture Chairman Debbie Stebenow. Because what, the, what this new uh, bill is talking about is actually a more comprehensive way of addressing these historical wrongs. And, and with this $5 billion that has been allocated in Biden's stimulus bill, that money, $4 billion of that is directed to relief payments for farmers of color pay, uh, to pay off outstanding debts. So that is a tangible solution. There is also a billion dollars that is going to support the USDA to root out systematic racism. Then there is money that is going to be set aside for grants and loans to improve land access because what that caller talked about in terms of land ownership and having that as, as an asset to be able to pass on to, to future generations that is a concrete, that is a real solution. And black people have been robbed of that for generations. And the only way for us to even begin to make up um, for what we have lost is to get that kind of concrete, tangible significance to help reclaim um, some of the losses that we have suffered over generations. So I completely agree with her. I think that, um, you know, we, we, we've talked about the history and now it's time to actually do something about it. And, and I see that um, happening with this new um, stimulus bill and the Emergency Relief for Farmers of Color Act. Yeah, the move has been called historic and it does sound like you think this is the kind of legislation we need in terms of a, a step, um, not the end all be all, but it's a good solid step. It's a solid step. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so we're talking with Natalie Bazil about the decline in black farming and her new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest. And right now, I'd also like to welcome Conda Mason to the conversation. She's the founder of Jubilee Justice, which works with black farmers on self-determination and the mitigation of land loss. And I believe she's joining us from a farm in Mississippi. Welcome to Forum, Conda Mason. Yes, thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay. okay. So yeah, Great. first, tell us Great. a bit about what you're up to today. Well, I'm I'm sitting in my RV right now. It's just on the um, on the land. Um, I'm working with a. I'm currently living in Louisiana, but I drove this morning. We left at five thirty this morning from Mississippi, so I'm I'm on the farm of uh, Mr. Ozell White and my crew. There's four of us, and we are here planting for him um, rice seedlings that we that we grew in our greenhouse, and we've come here to plant them for him. Um, he's a new person, a new farmer in our project, and 
I'm looking I, and I just came into my RV to take this call and I'm looking out the window and we're all there all out there working. And yeah, it's a uh, it's a beautiful day here in Mississippi. And you were living in the Bay Area until last August, right? What what prompted to the move back south? Yeah, I am from California, born and raised in California, and I was currently living in Oakland. And um, I started this project that uh, is called Jubilee Justice, and it is a working with um, all the issues that Natalie has been speaking about um, this morning, trying to do our part to mitigate some of the harm. And I've been very uh, distraught about uh, the situation with Black farmers, and I think it just came to a boiling point and I decided to just do something. And uh, I started this project that's working with black farmers in Mississippi and Louisiana and South Carolina and Georgia so far. We will hope to come to California as well. And um, I couldn't do it from Oakland, you know, as this is, you can't farm from Oakland in Mississippi. So um, the next thing I knew, I bought an RV and I drove to Louisiana. And since August, I've been here and this is home now. Um, and I love it. I'm, it's just amazing to be a part, a small part of the solution of all the things that um, Natalie's been pointing to that um, is well known if you, if you know and should be known by, by everyone. I mean, I, I always feel like <clears throat> the knowledge of how um, the discrimination and what has happened and the racism towards Black people in urban America has been caught on, on cell phones. I mean, we're dealing with a trial right now today in Minneapolis about that. But there's no cell phones. There's no, there's no cell phones out here in the rural South showing also what's happening and all the things that have happened to Black farmers that have been heinous. And so we don't know about it, you know? And so I always think that you know, some of us need to be the the cell phones of and showing what's happening here. And um, it's so widespread and it's been going on forever. And a, a reminder to our listeners that if you have questions about the state of black farming in the U.S., if you are a black farmer or someone in your family history was and you'd like to share your experience, you can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Kanda Mason, I was reading an Associated Press story about a couple, Latif and Carrie Dowdell, who'd moved from Arizona to Kansas in 2017 to try and save the family farm, which was once part of a huge black farming community that is no longer. Um, and when the bank foreclosed on the land, they went to the USDA, which told them their lack of farming experience meant the agency couldn't provide any help. Um, it made me think of you knowing we'd be having this conversation because it sounds like one of the reasons you're doing doing the work that you do right now. Well, you know, first of all, it, it's interesting. There are so many Black farmers that are told that pretty much that they don't know what they're doing. And it couldn't be further from the truth. It couldn't be further from the truth. The fact that Black farmers even are still here, the 44,000 that are still here, it's a miracle. And it's due to their ability to wade through, <coughs> excuse me, to wade through all of the disenfranchisement that has happened to them 
and still farm on top of it and be better than their than their white counterparts in order for them to survive. So, you know, there's a story that you that they don't know what they're doing. I'm not teaching anything that these farmers know what they're doing. I am just I have an idea. We have an idea and we are bringing a new innovative way of growing rice to these farmers who already are amazing and know what they're doing and have survived for years, generation after generation after generation. And so, yeah, I mean, that story is constantly um, that they don't, you, you, you're not a, you're not a farmer. You don't know what you're doing. It's, it's, it's the line that they told that is absolutely not, not true. And contributing to the kind of continued distrust with the USDA, um, which we've heard a lot of reasons today of why that's the case. And so I know you're also helping out with a loan fund. And, and Natalie Bazil, I know you have a Black Harvest Fund that you've started. I'll ask you about that in a moment as well. Um, but Conda Mason, tell us about the, the loan fund that you've set up. Yeah, I'm, I'm really thrilled about it. So it is a nonprofit as well. And it is a supporting organization of uh, technically a supporting nonprofit of the nonprofit Jubilee Justice, and it's called Pot Liquor Capital. And um, some of you may may know what the word pot liquor means. And um, it is that juice at the bottom of the of the greens of the collard greens or the mustard greens that your mother gives you to build strong bones and strong body. And that what we call pot liquor. And so pot liquor is that capital that is going to build us back up. And it is what we call reparative capital, clearly um, a play off of the word reparations and repair is the kind of reparative capital that these farmers need now. So it's called an integrated capital model where we have grants, we have recoverable grants, and we have very, very low interest loans. And, um, you know, no more than 3%, 2% loans are the average. And we're also, because Black farmers have been over-collateralized to the point of that's the other reason is that as they get their loans too late, as Natalie pointed out, too short of what they need and season after season, they but they've also over-collateralized them. So their homes and their farms are on hock. What we're doing is substituting that with philanthropic capital. And Natalie Bazil, tell us about the Black Harvest Fund you set up in partnership with the San Francisco Foundation. What are you hoping the fund will do? Well, the Black Harvest Fund is really my attempt to um, put my money where my mouth is. And, you know, I want to, with the book, I wanted to celebrate and elevate the voices and the stories of Black and Brown farmers. But I also know that I wanted to actually do something and I wanted to give other people an opportunity to do something. And so I established this donor advised fund with the San Francisco Foundation and I've contributed my own personal money to it and reached out to friends and family uh, here in the Bay Area who know about my passion for black farmers and wanted to help. And so together we have seeded this fund that will allow me and my advisors to then distribute that money in the form of grants to nonprofit organizations that are doing the work on the ground to help black and brown farmers um, learn. And, and so for example, there is a small organization in Okalona, Mississippi called the Mississippi Minority Farmers Alliance. 
you know, they fly under the radar of so many of the of the big grants. But these are people, Carolyn and Chris Jones, who are doing the work in their little tiny town of educating youth about agriculture. And so with this donor advised fund, with the Black Harvest Fund, I can now give them a grant. And, you know, a little goes a long way for, for an organization like that. And so I will be identifying other nonprofits and this money will then go to them to help them do the work that they're already doing. We're talking with Natalie Bazil, author of Queen's Sugar and of the new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, and Conda Mason, founder of Jubilee Justice, a nonprofit working with black farmers on self-determination and the mitigation of land loss. And overall, we're talking about the decline and future of black farming here in the U.S. And we're talking with you, our listeners. What questions do you have about the state of black farming in the U.S.? Are you a black farmer or was someone in your family history? We want to hear your experience. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And this listener tweets, I'm curious to know how we can support black farmers in California. How do we know if produce or flowers, etc., are grown by black farmers? I just have about 40 seconds to the break. Conda Mason or Natalie? Brazil, do either of you have an idea on that? Is there a resource yeah, well, or a site you can look to to know where, what is black-owned uh, black farms? You know, not to, not to my knowledge, unfortunately. It's funny. Uh, a young woman just reached out to me um, yesterday saying that she is the descendant of one of the very few uh, black farms in California. Um, uh, to my knowledge, I don't know that there is a formal network I know that there are some uh, national networks like um, Bugs, for example, Black Urban Growers. Um, All right. Well, that sounds so- like a good resource we can shout out now. We're headed into the break, but more with Natalie Bazil and Conda Mason. I'm Ariana Prail. This is Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. We're talking about the decline and future of black farming with Natalie Bazil, author of Queen Sugar and of the new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest, and Conda Mason, founder of Jubilee Justice, a nonprofit working with black farmers on self-determination and the mitigation of land loss. Natalie Bazil, I want to be sure to highlight a couple of the stories in your book that are really uplifting to read. You feature a young woman in Sonoma, Brene Royal, who is the vineyard manager at Monte Rosso Vineyard. Tell us about Brene and why you wanted to include her in the book. Well, Brene is just amazing. Um, she is uh, up in Sonoma County. She is a vineyard manager for Monte Rosso, which is one of uh, Gallo's vineyards. And I was put in touch with Renee and was so inspired by her story because this is a young, dynamic Black woman in her early 30s, um, out there running, you know, 
running this organization. And she was so inspiring and she has a vision for, you know, what she is trying to do. And what I, I wanted to include her in the book because not only is she a farmer, <clears throat> but she is in the wine industry. And I wanted to say to readers, here is a young woman in an industry where typically we do not see a lot of Black people. I know that there are some Black vintners up in the Bay Area, uh, up in Napa and Sonoma. But here is a young woman who is leading the charge. She is part of what uh, Leah Pennyman terms the returning generation. Young people in their 20s and 30s who are going back to the land. And Brene is just a visionary. And, you know, she has the full support of E.J. Gallo. She's up there on Moon Mountain um, running a vineyard. And she just tells a beautiful story about her own connection to agriculture, her own love of wine and the wine industry. And I just wanted to include her story as an example of all the ways that people of color can be involved in, in agriculture um, in a way that will propel us forward. Well, let's go to caller Kimberly in Mill Valley. Kimberly, you're on. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, we have a small um, farm. I, I'm not a black farmer, but we have a small family farm in Sonoma, and I understand how hard it is to be a small farmer when there are, you know, mega farming operations um, with economies of scale better than ours. But um, but I just wonder how can any of us help the situation? It's so sad to hear these stories um, near Hilton Head and other places in the in the south and the southeast. And tell tell us how any of us can help and. And, I'll, and maybe also just add to the to your website um, resources where we can go and help if we if we wanted to. Thanks, Kimberly, for your question. Conda Mason, do you have any thoughts for Kimberly? Yes, I do. Thank you, Kimberly, for the question. And I, I hope that other listeners are are, are asking the same question. And um, there's so much to be done. There's so much to be done. Those, what Natalie has set up with her um, DAF, with her Donor Advice Fund and San Francisco Foundation, is exactly what to do. Either supporting her DAF, because what she is then doing is supporting those nonprofits on the ground that are doing the work. So supporting organizations that are doing the work on the ground is one of the best things you could do, is to find them out. Um, I'm sure there will have resources after this. I don't, I'm not sure how it's all set up, but you can find those resources and help those organizations by supporting them with any kinds of financial support that you can give, any information support that you can give. Um, there's also, there's a land back movement that is happening. Um, that is that gets a little bit more <laughs> trickier because of families and you know typically when land is owned by white families it's more than just one person who really wants to do the right thing who really wants to do something with reparations and but there's others to contend with that may not see it the same way and so i i get how tricky it could be um but talking about it and keeping it alive in the family and understanding that this is something that we sh that we may think about doing and um it's it's there's so many people as um as natalie was just saying and how leah Pinneman calls the returning generation they're returning but they don't have land 
most of them they're looking for land so there's land that can be that can be actually given there's there's resources financial resources there's there's um social resources hooking people up with different people that you know that can be helpful there's lots of ways to contribute um to help this movement go further and again the donor advice fund you were referencing is the black harvest fund in partnership with the san francisco foundation um i believe that's right just that um, That's for right. Kimberly. And uh, similarly, this listener, Allison, writes, these stories of the history of discrimination and the taking of land from black farmers makes me angry. For someone who is neither black nor a farmer living far away from the farms of the South, what can we do to support a change to the situation? Beyond money, there needs to be an awareness raising campaign for reparations, which is something I heard you also referencing, um, Conda Mason. And I think, Natalie Bazil, this is a core reason to have a book like what you have. And so can you also just tell us a bit more about the shape of this book project? Um, because you're including a lot of different stories. It isn't just kind of this straight narrative. It's it's so many different pieces of this larger puzzle of, you know, beautiful black farmers in, in the US. Can you tell us more about the overall mission behind this book? Absolutely. <clears throat> so We Are Each Other's Harvest is really a celebration. You know, I think so often when we when we hear these stories and we talk about what has happened to black people and black farmers in this country, it can feel heavy because it is heavy. But by the same token, there is tremendous there are a lot of things to celebrate, and that's what I really wanted this book to be. So the book is really a dynamic experience of this history. It includes um, first-person narratives with farmers, old farmers, young farmers, um, farmers up in um, Seattle and, and Alaska, up in upstate New York, as well as in the South, who are telling these stories of perseverance and resilience and determination and celebration. But the book also includes essays, both historical essays by people like Clyde Ford and Pete Daniel, who really dig into the history, but then beautiful personal essays by Leah Pennyman and Michael Twitty, who is a culinary historian. The book also includes poems from some of the, some of the best African-American poets of our day, um, Ross Gay and Tanya Foster and uh, Elizabeth Alexander and Robin Cost Lewis, who are writing about not necessarily farming, but they're writing in celebration of the land and what that means, or they're writing about food and the connection between food and the soil. So it's a really rich experience because what I wanted to do was to celebrate this rich history. I didn't really want to write a book that was just you know, oh, woe is, woe is me, right? That is part of the story. But, but what I think Conda and I are, are so inspired by is the experience of these farmers and this rich and textured history that we are a part of. And we wanted to share our love and our passion with, with readers. Conda's doing it by the work that she's doing it. I'm doing it as a storyteller. 
And so this book is really meant to be an uplifting experience. And that's why, for example, I love the cover so much, which features Leah and Naima Pennyman, two young Black women who are on, who work on Soul Fire Farm. They founded that farm and it is a Black and Indigenous run farm in upstate New York. And these women are fierce and unapologetic. They have a vision for what they want going forward. And so the book is really a celebration of where we are headed. It's an acknowledgement of the past, but it is supposed to be a rich and dynamic experience of stories and a chorus of voices. Again, we're talking about the decline and future of black farming with Natalie Bazil, author of Queen Sugar, and she was just describing her new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest. We also have Conda Mason with us, founder of Jubilee Justice, a nonprofit working with black farmers on self-determination and the mitigation of land loss. Listener Arthur writes, uh, what role do the 18 black land grant universities of 1890 and Tuskegee University play in training new black farmers in their agricultural programs? Yet what is the, the state of historically black universities um, that were intended for agriculture training? Conda Mason well, or, Nat or Natalie? Sure, I'll jump in. <clears throat> so the 1890s are land grant universities that were literally established in 1890 in black communities. So institutions like Tuskegee or uh, North Carolina uh, A&T, these are institutions that were founded at a time when black people were not given the opportunity to attend white colleges. And a lot of them taught uh, their students about agriculture. Many of those colleges are still in existence today. And the good news is part of, part of uh, President Biden's package, his stimulus package, is directing money to those 1890s to help them educate people in their, in educate students. So there are scholarships that are being given to uh, 1890 land grant universities for indigenous students who are attending um, who want to learn about agriculture. So the 1890s are going to play a key role in propelling us forward and, and assisting in educating black and brown students about opportunities in agriculture. Terry, if I could add oh, a little bit to that. Yes. Yeah, if I could add a little bit is that um, one of the things that's really important is that these 1890s also become on the cutting edge of agriculture and not just upholding um, industrial ag and, mm -hmm. and with, you know, latent with all the chemicals and, and, and how we have killed the soil. And, and, and that's what ag schools do. They teach the big ag kind of um, uh, methodologies of farming. And so there is a movement right now to raise money. We have a, raise, a group of, of folks who are raising funds to create an actual regenerative agriculture department at one of the 1890s that will then um, be set up to so that 
these students would actually be on the cutting edge of learning about soil, learning about uh, climate mitigation through farming and become in the forefront, which is some of the work that, that we're doing here. The work that I do is at that intersection of climate and social justice. And so that's the kinds of things that we're doing is that there's this incredible group of people raising money to create this department at um, one of the 1890s right now. And Natalie Bazil, you also share the story of the Nelson and Sons Farm in Sondheimer, Louisiana. Can you tell us a bit about their story and why it was important to include them in the book? They're a three or four generation, fourth That's generation correct. farm? That's correct. So I was introduced to the Nelsons and it's a father, Mr. Nelson, and his four adult sons, uh, ranging in age from Adrian, who's the baby, who's about 28, to um, Willie, <clears throat> Willie Nelson uh, Jr. And they are just a remarkable family. They are four sons who, four young black men who are so ambitious and determined to continue the legacy. When I met, Mr. When I met the Nelsons up in Sondheimer, uh, I spent a, a day on their farm. And the first thing Mr. Nelson told me was the story of his great-great-grandfather, who after emancipation worked and toiled for years to acquire land. Actually, he worked to pay off um, a loan on some land that he was trying to buy. And when he went to the white guy um, to make his last loan payment, the man told him, I'm not gonna sell you this land. And so, he ended up, his name was Willie Nelson Sr. He ended up leaving uh, Mississippi in their little town and migrating to Louisiana at a time when <clears throat> uh, Louisiana was making land available to tenant farmers. And he ended up acquiring land and that's part of the land that the Nelsons now farm. But the boys, the sons are just so inspiring because they are ambitious. Like Conda said, these young men have grown up farming. They know what they are doing. And their story in the book tells the story of their history, but it also um, in their own voices describes what they want and what they see for themselves as this fourth generation of black farmers. And they just have a vision um, that I just found remarkable and they're delightful. And I just wanted to celebrate their story in the book um, so that readers could see that, you know, like Conda said, in spite of all of these obstacles, you have farmers out there who are, who are determined to keep going. And I just wanted to include them as one of the stories in the book of, you know, young men who are ambitious and unapologetic. And Conda Mason, do you have a, a brief final thought in, in what you're most encouraged by right now when it comes to black farming? Yeah, thank you for that question. I am, you know, what I'm most encouraged about is that this conversation right now is happening, right? That that somehow KQED, you, you've gotten on the radar about this issue. Natalie's book coming out is encouraging. It's may it spread far and wide. What is happening is that the general public is, is in shock as they learn, but they're learning. And 
I would say two years ago, that wasn't true. There is just, it has grown exponentially how many people have learned uh, about the situation. And just the fact that even the name, the word reparations is now kind of in our daily lexicon in America is just, is, it, I never thought I'd see the day. And when you're talking about reparations, you can't talk about reparations without talking about land and, and land ownership. Um, it's, 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 it's a, it has to be included in, in reparations. And so I'm super excited that there's so many incredible people on the ground working with Black farmers and, and, and lifting up their stories and giving them the support that they need. And it's a, it's a very exciting time right now. And since it's National Poetry Month, to close on a hopeful note, I'm wondering, Natalie Bazil, if you'd read the last two parts of the four-part poem, A Love Letter to Future Generations by Naima Pennyman, that's a farmer featured in your book. I'd be, I'd be honored. <clears throat> so this is um, a poem that Naima uh, wrote. I asked her to con contribute a poem to the book, and, and this, is what she, uh, she, this is what she wrote. We are descendants of futurists who did not give up on the possibility at least one seed would survive. The endless tides of transatlantic crossing, auction blocks, monocrop cotton, razor sharp sugar, the harvest of salt, the scalding sun and burning crosses, hidden propagation in forbidden gardens, generation of generations of dehydration and bondage, summoning softness from the clouds, our bodies are made of water and promise. Our mothers, mothers, mothers did not give up on the possibility. At least one seed would make its way through layers of cold, hard, rocky silt and sand and clay. And in the face of great danger, soften its shell, open its hull, extend a tender root, find water and food, trusting there is light somewhere enough to bloom. A flower becomes fruit. Love precedes a child. Someone was dreaming of you. Natalie Bazil reading from her new book, We Are Each Other's Harvest. We also are joined by Conda Mason, founder of Jubilee Justice. Thank you for joining us. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.